Our Father, it's good to be still and it's good to be quiet. Just to kind of catch our breath from, uh, from today, most of us have been going pretty hard. That just seems to be uh, almost every day. We are grateful that you are there. We are grateful that prayer is not just some religious exercise or religious uh, ritual. It is for some. That's not how you want it to be. We are grateful that uh, you are our Father, that you have sent your Son, Jesus. We thank you for... And we don't, we don't say this lightly. We, we thank you for his life, for his sacrifice that we try to comprehend, but uh, we, we inevitably come up short. It's, uh, it's amazing what he did for us, that he went to the cross and took our sin upon him. We should have been punished, but we were not because... Our sins were put upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was without sin, your son, God, who came in the flesh, took our penalty. He, he, he died in our place. That is the gospel. <clears throat> so we don't have to um, try to earn our way to you. We never could. But that's man's way, that's man's system of religion. Do enough good works, light enough candles, you have enough uh, garage sales and give the money to the Salvation Army or all of those things. But those things can never pay for sin. We, we, were, we were lost and we were dead and we were without hope and Jesus came and died in our place. And we thank you that the Spirit of God opened our eyes. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and that you made us alive. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which which you prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And, and those good works, Lord, obviously are not good works to earn salvation. We, we were saved in verse 8, but in verse 10 it says, you have good works for us to do now that we know you, and now we have a purpose, and you're going to use us. And we've all come short, we've all failed, we've all messed up. So what do you do? You take broken men with broken lives, and uh, we, we've all hit the wall in one way or another, we, we've all come to the end of ourselves, and then we finally realize that we need you, and you come into our dead lives, and you resurrect us and give us new life and give us hope. So we're just a bro bunch of broken guys in here that are grateful for Jesus Christ, and we want our lives to count. We, <laughs> we don't want to waste our lives. I thank you for the guys who are here tonight that uh, this is somewhat new to them, and they're kind of in process and, and finding out about Jesus and what he did. This, this is, they're still, 
they're still taking the, the, the steps and it's not all clear to them. Well, that's, that's fine. We were all there at one time. You're just pulling them in and we thank you that you are. But thank you that you have a plan. Thank you have, that you have a purpose. Some of us this week, Lord, have had some good things happen that have encouraged our hearts. Other guys have had another wave of uh, disappointment and bad news. But we thank you that you govern it all and you're over it all. You use it all in our lives for a purpose. So wherever we are tonight, we submit ourselves to you. We submit our plans. We submit our hopes, our, our fears, our disappointments. We submit it to you. We, we trust you with our lives. You know what is best. You know what you're doing in our lives. We don't. We look to Jesus, and we look to his word, the Bible. Help us tonight as we study it. Encourage us. Thank you that you are a God who is full of grace and mercy and loving kindness. When you're in your family, we can never be booted out because of your amazing love, which has adopted us. So we are grateful. We are grateful. Give us teachable hearts now so this time is not wasted. We would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Well, we have been in this study based on 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Uh, We've been in it now for nine years, it seems like. We've been in it a long time. Basically, I don't know what, seven, eight, nine weeks? And the whole thing has been off the premise of 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where it uses the phrase, act like men. The reason we've been doing that is, and I, not to beat a dead horse, but let me beat a dead horse for a minute. The, the reason we've been going over this is, once again, and if you've been in on this, you've heard me say it every week, the further a culture gets away from God, the further a culture gets away from Jesus Christ, the further that a culture gets away from the Bible, the more insane a culture becomes or an individual becomes. Um, when we get away from God, when we get away from his truth as individuals, or when a nation does, you're in trouble. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do, the scripture says. Uh, we, we are watching a culture before our eyes get dismantled from within. When I was a kid, some of you guys, I mean, are my age, you remember getting under the desk because uh, we thought the Russians might attack with ICBMs. And I'm going to tell you something, those desks were unbelievable barriers. <laughs> were they not? They were going to keep us alive, man. If that nuke hit the schoolyard, we were going to be fine because those desks were made in America and they're solid. But, you know, hey. You got to get under something, don't you? But you know, it's always interesting when you look at history. And uh, Toynbee, you know, looked at the uh, looked at some of the great civilizations, twenty two, twenty four, twenty six, whatever they were. The great civilizations. None of them lasted more than two hundred fifty years. They all collapsed from within. That's what happens when we get away from God. When we get away from the Bible. When we get away from Jesus Christ. We get away from our foundation. Almost all of us now have some kind of GPS. Uh, you got a phone, not just a phone, you got a smartphone. It, it knows where you are. It probably knows more than you want it to know about you. But if you use that little GPS thing and, and you know, you're trying to figure out where you're going and you're in, traveling somewhere, um, those things are amazing, aren't they? 
But every once in a while, at least I will, I'll get a little, little message on my phone and it'll say, unable to determine your location. Oh, then you got problems. Because see, when they're unable to determine my location, there's no reference point. Now see, that's what happens to someone they get away from God. That's what happens to a nation when they move away from God. When, when, when you move away from God and you harden your heart to the fact that he is there and that he is the creator and that he is the savior, when you harden yourself to God, what happens is it's not that God doesn't know where you are. You don't know where you are. When, when you lose the reality of God and that he is sovereign and that he has sent his son, this is Romans chapter 1. When you lose that, you lose your reference point. You lose your anchor. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You don't know how to live without him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You ever talk about a friend or some guy you work with and, uh, or, or a neighbor you had you know, years ago and you think back and you, you know, he had a lot of common sense. Really. That's a compliment. When you say that a guy has common sense, you know what you're saying? He had a lot of wisdom. Just a synonym. Well, we get away from God and we lose our bearings in every area of our lives. Financially, business, uh, the justice system, uh, laws that are passed. We just lose our minds. We go insane. We go crazy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and he's wrapping it up to the, Ephesian, uh, to, the, to the church of Corinth. He says, act like men. And as messed up as they were, and Corinth was a messed up city in a messed up culture, seacoast town like San Francisco or New Orleans, rampant immorality, God was the last thing on their minds. To this small group of believers, he says, hey, act like men. Act like men. And they knew what he was talking about. Uh, that term that was used there, act like men, the, the idea of it is it, w- it, was, it was used, and in, in especially for soldiers, that they would be obedient to those who were in authority over them and that they would trust in the power of God to fulfill his promises. So much, when it says act like men, So much of what we deal with is men. And it doesn't matter where you are in life. Because we have guys here at the different stages of life. If you're a young guy, if you're middle-aged, if you're an older guy, um, wherever you are, you know what we all have in common? We're all scared of something. We're all fighting off fear. But we all, every guy in this room has got fear. Fear about... relational situation, fear about a health situation, you or uh, someone you love. Talked with a friend of mine today and his daughter who is a young mother has got um, three imminent life-threatening issues in her life. And they're just walking through it best they can. But man, fear can raise its head See, so much of the Christian life, it's, it's getting fear under your foot like you'd hold a snake down, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say. You just got to you keep your foot on the back of that snake's head. And if you don't, it's going to rear up and it's going to get you. You see, fear not, fear not, fear not, 
Fear not, fear not. Over 300 times in the scripture. There's always something to be afraid of. There's always something that can get us. There's always something that can get us down. It might be physically, it might be uh, a depression your wife can't pull out of. It might be a physical ailment. It might be a, a wayward kid. It might be a wife that's gone crazy and left and met some guy on the internet. I run into this all the time. Um, it could be a thousand different things. It could, it could be a, a, a situation where uh, uh, there, there's a tragic accident or a disease and a, and a child dies and... Uh, Oh, my gosh. It can be anything. You know, for us guys, I remember hearing, um, I, I, I get this more than I did as a young man, but I would hear about, you know, young girls, young moms, wanting to be moms, who miscarried. And it was devastating for them. I know a young gal that has miscarried one, two, three, four times. And she'd really like to have a baby, but she's just scared to death of what might happen the fifth time. Right? We've all got our fears, don't we? So we're fighting off fear. We're fighting off fear, and what are we doing? Well, God calls us to act like men to fight off fear and to get under the authority of our Father to get our marching orders, and to keep moving ahead in faith, believing him and his promises that he will be there for us. Does he promise us a pain-free life? No, he doesn't. You'll hear some guys on television that will tell you he wants you to have a pain-free life, but you don't find that in the Bible. Not if you read it carefully, not if you read it closely. Uh, God is good to us. God blesses us. Uh, he, 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 we, we've all been given so much. But God does not want spoiled kids any more than you do. Warren Mearsby used to say, if God puts something in my hand without first doing something in my heart, he'll ruin me. Right? So oftentimes, we go through hard things and we go through pain. Why do we do that? Because he's maturing us and he's conforming us into the image of his son. Christian life is not an easy life. It's a hard life. Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not some, not few, many. You ever feel like you got many? Well, then you're right on track, man. <laughs> Your GPS is good. Many tribulations? Hey, you're following Christ. You're right where you ought to be. Philippians 1, 29, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. So we've been talking about acting like men. Um, you're a Christian man. First of all, let's say this. If you're a Christian man, um, that's a bad thing to be these days. If you're serious about your faith. You're not going to be real popular. Um, because, you see, if you're following Christ, you're always swimming upstream. You're never going downstream. If you're following Christ... You're not on the broad road that leads to destruction. You're going through the narrow gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So if you're serious about Christ, it's a hard life. It's a difficult life because the Father is taking us through things. He's always with us. We're never alone. But he's building spiritual muscle. He, we face these different giants. 
We walk through these things. He, he delivers us. He makes a way. Sometimes things don't turn out the way that we had hoped, but we keep moving and we keep trusting in Christ. This is not our final destination. There is a place called heaven. This isn't it. This is preparation. Part of our responsibility as men is to act like men because there are younger men that are watching us. There are younger men that are under our care. There are younger men of whom we are responsible for. And there are young ladies. If you're a husband, if you're a father, you have a very, very strategic position. Uh, it's also a very uh, stressful position. We don't talk a lot about that. We don't walk around complaining and whining. But it's a, it's a hard position because really, biblically, the book stops with you. God has said that the man is head of the wife, the husband is head of the home. That's not real popular anymore, but it is how it worked. Uh, Harry Truman used to have uh, something on his desk. I can't remember what it was, but it says the buck stops here. That's very biblical, actually, because God has called men to lead their homes and to lead their families, and the buck stops with men. We, we feel the weight, and we feel the pressure, and we feel the responsibility, and we should. I, I want to wrap up tonight this study. Uh, I want to go back to First Peter chapter 3. This is going to be hard for some of you guys, and I'll tell you why. Uh, and, I, and I touched on this last week a little bit. In 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, what is happening is that Peter is giving instruction to wives, and then in verse 7, he gives instruction to husbands, and we looked at that last week. And then beginning in verse 8, he sums it all up. Um, Have you noticed that the enemy is attacking the family? Have you picked up on this? I'm sure you have. Yeah. It's staggering, the attack on families in America. Uh, years ago, I did a, a book called Point Man, and I said in the opening chapter, I said, if you're a husband, you're a father, you need to understand two things about the enemy. If you're serious about following Christ, number one, if you get, when you get serious about following Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. Up until the moment you're serious about Jesus Christ, before then, he really doesn't care. He's not interested. He doesn't need to be worried about you because you're basically neutralized. You're not having any influence. But when you come to your senses and Christ comes into your life and you realize that you're here on earth for a reason, and, and you've wasted your life with this and this and this, and, 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 and now you want to be the man that God wants you to be, and you want Christ to lead you, and your sins are forgiven. Okay, now, now you're ready to move. Now you're ready to be productive with your life and be a man instead of a, of a man-child or a child-man. Now you're ready to go. Okay. Know this that when you get serious, the enemy has a twofold strategy. Number one, he wants to alienate and eventually sever the relationship that you enjoy with your wife. The Bible says, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So it's God's plan that the two become one. What the enemy wants to do is to take the two who have become one and make them two again. We talked about, I think last week, the fact that 
the laws in this country used to support marriage. But with everything else that was shaken up in the 60s, we missed around with the divorce laws and came up with something called no-fault divorce. So now, you, it used to be prior to that, that if your spouse wanted the divorce, they couldn't get a divorce unless you granted them the divorce, but that was all out the window. So now, if a spouse wants to leave, you're basically without any recourse to stop them from leaving. I'm not sure there's ever been a situation like this before in history. It sure wasn't this way in the New Testament times. Uh, marriage was considered to be extremely important. The family was considered to be extremely important. So, know this. Number one, the enemy's strategy to alienate, eventually sever the relationship that you enjoy with your wife. Here's number two. And I was writing to men, so I said that. I, I aimed it to the guys. Here's the second thing. He wants to alienate and eventually sever the relationship that you enjoy with your kids. When our kids are little, they're three, four, five, they think their daddy's on the moon. They hit 12, 13, 14, 15, they want their daddies to go to the moon. Why is that? Well, they're not little kids anymore. You know, now they're going through transition. They're going into adolescence. They want to do it their own way. And that's when friction starts happening. You see, this family stuff is tough stuff. It's not easy. Some of you guys have taken some real shots in your homes. Some of you guys have been devastated. You, you wanted the family to stay together, but something outside of your control has busted up your home. And it's a heartbreak, and it remains to this day, and um, you wish you weren't there, but you are. I was reading an article this week by Paul Tripp. It was intended for pastors. But as I read it, I thought, this isn't just for pastors. This is for Christian men. Listen to this. He says, the longer you're in, and I'm going to edit this, the pastoral stuff, okay? So I'm going to change up some words. Here and there, I'll change them up. He says to the pastors, the longer you're in pastoral ministry, the more you move from being an astronaut to an archaeologist. When you're young, you're excitedly launching the world's unknown. You have all of the major decisions of life and ministry before you, and you can spend your time assessing your potential and considering your opportunities. It's a time when you're young of exploration and discovery. It's a time to go where you've never been before and do what you've never done. It's a time to begin to use your training and gain experience. It's true in any area of life for any Christian man. But as you get older, you begin to look back at least as much as you look forward. That's a significant statement, and it's true. As you get older, you begin to look back at least as much as you look forward. As you look back, you tend to dig through the mound of the civilization that was your past life, and you're looking for pottery shards of thoughts and desires and choices, actions, words, decisions, and relationships. You can't help but assess how you have done with what you have been given. It's part of getting older. Now, who would be so arrogant and bold as to look back on their life and say, in every possible way, I was as good as I could have been? Wouldn't we all hold some of those pottery shards in our hands and experience at least a little bit of regret? We would. Wouldn't all of us wish that we could take back words we have said, decisions we have made, or actions we have taken? Yeah, all of us. Two come to mind. Here's two. And I do this to myself all the time. 
I'll say this. Why did I do that? You guys ever ask yourself that question? Why did I do that? And what I should say is, why did I do that again? <laughs> see, that would make more sense. But it, see, it's implied. I mean, it's, that's the whole point. Here's another one. Why did I say that? The enemy can take a guy and absolutely tie him in a pretzel. A guy who is in Christ. A guy who has been forgiven. You know how he ties us in pretzels? And you know how he neutralizes us and literally turns us into quadriplegics. In a chair who can't move. You know how he does it? By getting us to focus on our past and our failures and our shortcomings and our screw-ups, and we've all got them, and we did them. But if he gets you focused there, you're paralyzed, and you're done, and you're frozen. Tripp goes on and says, Isn't it wonderful that we can stare our deepest, darkest failures in the face and be unafraid? Isn't it comforting that we can honestly face our most regretful moments and not be devastated. Isn't it amazing that we can confess that we really are sinners and be neither fearful nor depressed? Now see, when you start to get the gospel, that's what should happen. I know you're in 1 Peter 3, and we're planning on reading it, but make a pit stop at Psalm 103. The reason I'm starting here instead at First Peter, because when you get to the stuff in First Peter, it's, it's, it's what he wants us to be. He wants us to continue to grow in Christ. But it's also going to bring up some memories of where we screwed up when I get into First Peter 3, okay? So before we get there, we have to understand where we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. Uh, and here's a question for you. When... Jesus died on the cross. How many of your sins were future? All of them. But the Bible declares that Jesus, by his blood, by his sacrificial substitutionary atonement, he died in our place. He paid for our sin completely and totally. Now, what that means is, so Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins, totally, completely. Um, there was something in the Old Testament, you know, you read Leviticus and you got all those priests and all those different rituals and the different birds and the showbread and all this stuff. You ever read Leviticus at five in the morning? And stay, you ever stayed awake reading Leviticus at five in the morning? That's tough. You know why it's tough? Because you're not a Levitical priest. But those priests would read that early in the morning. They had no trouble staying awake because if you got it wrong, you might get killed. Like Nadab and Abihu. They put strange fire. They didn't do what God said. Boom. They were gone. 
Um, Psalm 103, watch this. And see, we know we've messed up. We know we've messed up. But one of the things you read about in Leviticus, they had a they had a procedure that involved a goat. You know what they'd do? They'd take the sins and they, the priest would lay his hands on the goat. And it was a figure, it was a way of taking the sins of the people, putting him on that goat, and they'd run that goat outside the camp. That goat is called a what? Called a scapegoat. Jesus, see that pointed to Christ. Jesus took it all on him. And he was outside the camp, and he paid for the sins of the world. As a result, look at the benefits. You, uh, you guys got a benefits package? Do you? Those are good things, especially in this economy, huh? Nothing wrong with a benefits package. If you're in Christ, here, here it is. Watch this. 103.8 of Psalm. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is quick to anger. Oh, slow, I'm sorry. We're quick to anger. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Watch, watch this. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. What else do we need there, guys? See, here, and here's the deal. We're, we're going to get into this marriage stuff here in a minute, and some of us, this is going to raise up all kinds of stuff, and we're going to think, why the heck did I do that? Why did I... Man, I mean, I ruined, you know what? That marriage, if I had been a different guy, that marriage would still be there. Yeah, but, but it's not, and you weren't. Oh, man, you know, I don't know what the Lord's going to do to me. You know what he's going to do to you? Nothing. If you've come to him in brokenness and repentance, you say, well, how can you say it? I'm not the one saying it. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Because my sin was put on Jesus nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. See, that we think, listen, if God rewarded us according to our iniquities, we'd have nothing and we wouldn't even be here. Would we? But he doesn't do that to us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. See, that sin, we remember it, and it's still kind of clinging to us, but he's taken that and scapegoated that sucker and put it out of the camp. We're still kind of walking around like it's on us with our baggage. It's gone because of what Jesus has done. Is this good news or what? So see, what do we have to do when we get these thoughts? we got to think. Christianity is primarily thinking. You gotta think about the facts of the scripture. You have to think about the facts of what God has said to be true. Not how you feel, what is true. You can't live off how you feel, can you? You can't be a man and, and live off how you feel. You get to bed late, you get to bed at two, you gotta get up at five, that alarm goes up, goes off. How do you feel at five after three hours sleep? Oh, this is great, this is the day that the Lord hath made. We shall rejoice and be glad in. Shoot, you're in a coma. You don't even know where you are, man. How do you feel? I feel like going over to turn it over and going back to bed. Are you going to do that? No. Because you can't live off how you feel. You're a man. 
You might do that when you're six years old, but you're not six years old anymore. You're a man. So you overrule your feelings, you base yourself and your actions on what is true, and you go do it. So we have to live in the Christian life. Just as a father has compassion on his children. You love your kids? You bet you do. That's why you've given them too much. Just like me. We tend to do that sometimes as dads. Don't we? Yeah, we've all screwed up there. Hey, you know what? And then sometimes you got to take away to kind of bring them back in the sink because they get a little full of themselves. We make a lot of mistakes as dad. Our father doesn't. Watch this. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. I love this. He himself knows our frame. He knows we're just dust. Hey, hey guys. <laughs> and you've heard me say this before. I, I still laugh about that book 30 years ago. I'm okay, you're okay. I mean, does that capture our culture? Everybody's, hey man, you're good, you're good. Actually, you're screwed up. <laughs> One day, I really would like to write a book called I'm Screwed Up, You're Screwed Up. <laughs> we're just dust, man. We're just dust. We're screwed up. We screw up all the time. I remember, I remember, I, I can't, you know, I speak too many places and I can't remember what stories I tell when and I don't keep detailed notes. So if you've heard this, forgive me. But it sure fits. I have the feeling I told this a few weeks ago here, but I remember, huh? I'm in Dallas. Thank you. When my boys were small, I tell you this, Mary was off with Rachel somewhere. And it was just, I just had the boys. They were like five and two, John and Josh. And I, we got them in the tub on Saturday night. I'm getting them cleaned up. You know, we were having fun. You know, mom wasn't around. We got a fire hose in there. We're going after it. But anyway, <laughs> we're just horsing around, you know, no big deal. And I thought, well, I better get some towels and get them out and clean them up, you know, dry them off. I go to find some towels, and uh, I come back in, and, I, and they'd both pooped in the tub. <laughs> they, were, they were having a poop off. <laughs> yeah, true story. Yeah, they were like 19 and 16. <laughs> no, they're just little guys. They're just little guys. And they kind of looked at me. And I, and I looked at that, I went, oh, crap. <laughs> I promised Mary I wouldn't say crap, but I just said it. It was crap. I mean, that's what it was. <laughs> and they're kind of looking at me, and I, got, I, was, a little, I was a little ticked. And, then I, and you know what? I started laughing. Because it was funny. <laughs> you know what happens to us? We, we think God's not for us. Psalm 56, 9. This I know, that God is for me. We think he's against us, even though we're in Christ. Why? Why do you think he's against you? How many of you guys think, here's, my, here's a question. How many of you guys think 
that God likes you. Okay? How many of you guys think God loves you? Well, we know he loves us. You've read your Bible. But see, like? Why do you? Th- and, but, and we had a lot less hands on like than love. Everybody, oh, God loves the love of God. John 3, 16, God's the love of the world. Well, does he like you? And see, not a lot of guys raise their hand. You know why? You know why you don't raise your hand thinking God likes you? Because you're always pooping in the tub. <laughs> You've been pooping your whole life. And then you don't even poop, you step in it. Then you ask yourself, why did I do that? Because you're screwed up. And I'm screwed up. And when you're that screwed up, you really need a Savior who's perfect and has this kind of amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Gospel means good news. Is this not the greatest news in the world? Yeah, it is. Let's go to 1 Peter 3 now. Okay, you know you're loved, you know you're forgiven in Christ. Not not for works, not not because you show up at Bible study, because you've trusted in Christ alone. All right, First Peter three eight. Uh, I and I got to say this again. God used Peter to write about marriage. I think that's a crack up because I don't think Peter was any prize to live with as a young man. I think Peter Peter wrote this towards the end of his life. Where am I going? First Peter three. Peter wrote these words towards the end of his life. When Peter was a young man, he did a lot of stupid things. He did a lot of foolish things. He was impulsive. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. But as we said last week, what happened to Peter is as years went by, Peter grew up in Christ. He didn't just grow old in Christ. He matured. His his thinking, his heart, his character... He became not the man he used to be. He was in the process of becoming a mature man. He, he was, not that his personality changed or that his temperament changed because those things don't change. However, the things that used to master us don't have to master us anymore, but it takes a long time. There are no Christian microwaves. If you've got, you got a temper issue, you're not going to jump in the Christian microwave and hit 30 seconds and come out without a temper. It's a, it's a, Eugene Peterson wrote a book one time called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a Christian life. See. So, we looked at this last week, 1 Peter 3, 7. We're not doing 1 through 6 because we don't have any women here. We're the guys. You husbands likewise, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a, someone weaker, a weaker vessel, physiologically weaker. You can be the same height, same weight as your wife. You have 40% more muscle mass. She's a weak vessel since she is a woman. You show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And then in verse 8, he's going to sum it all up. What you've got here is a recipe. It's a recipe we should be shooting for. It's a recipe for marriage is what it is. Because first he talked to the wives, then the husbands. Now he's going to sum it all up. All right, To sum up, let all be... Harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Now, I want to say this right out of the blocks. Right now, the enemy is just starting to throw arrows, to shoot arrows at some guys in here, because you're immediately thinking about when you weren't sympathetic, or when you weren't kind-hearted, or all this. And we've all been there, okay? 
But this is what we're shooting for. This is what we're asking God to do in our lives. Okay? And at least I read the verse. Let me go to Philippians 3. Let me just show you this real quickly. I'm having trouble here tonight. Of course, I have trouble every night finding my passage. We, we look at this passage in 1 Peter 3 with Philippians 3.13 in our minds. Paul says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Watch this. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. You see that? Could, could the enemy have paralyzed Paul because of his past? Hey, he held the coats of those who killed Stephen. And then he was out on a, on a jihad for the believers. How, how many prophets did he jail? How many were killed? Do you think Paul ever ran into any widows on his missionary journeys? And he was responsible for the death of their husbands? I don't think that. It, it doesn't tell us in Scripture. I, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. Do you think the enemy ever at night when he was trying to go to sleep would bring back the faces of those believers that he had tortured and persecuted in the, against Christ before he came to know Christ? He could have been paralyzed, just as we can be paralyzed. Watch this. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the, for the, of the prize of the upward call of God. In Christ Jesus. That's what we're going to do here in 1 Peter 3.8. So how many of you guys are married? Let me see your hands. Okay. All right, good. And I want to say this again. I said it a few weeks ago. You guys that are single, you don't know how long you'll be single. You're thinking, I'll never be married again. Well, how would you know that? You don't know what God's going to do, do you? The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So you might want to listen up. You don't know where you'll be down the road. Okay? Watch this. He's summing up, and what he's going to do, he's going to give, he's going to give a recipe for strong relationships in a home. But they just don't work in a home. They work in any kind of human endeavor. Okay? Watch the ingredients. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. You were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Let's, let's break them down real quick, okay? Let all be harmonious. That's, that's interesting. Uh, harmony is a musical term. There are some great soloists in the world, incredible voices, um, the greatest soloist in the world can't sing harmony by themselves. To get harmony, you have to have two different people with two different voices singing two different parts. That's the only way you ever get harmony. Went to a dance looking for a romance. Saw Barbara Ann, so I thought I'd take a chance. Barbara Ann. Ba-ba. <laughs> Baba ran. You got me rocking and a rolling, rocking and a reeling. Barbara ran. Baba. 
Let's stand and sing that together. <laughs> now, if you're of my generation, you know the Beach Boys and their harmony. You know what I love is that my, my kids, John, we were at the Rangers game the other night, and John and Josh, and I had Rachel was there with her husband, Court, and we're all there, we're all hanging out, you know. Somehow we got talking about Beach Boys. My kids all love the Beach Boys. They love the harmony. They, and, and Josh said, he's a real music, he goes, Dad, he said, I think they're better than the Beatles. He said, you know that one album they did? And I mean, I, Pet Sounds. I mean, I remember. I mean, he was... Aren't you glad you came tonight? <laughs> why do, why do, well, but here's the point. Why do you like the Beach Boys? Because of their harmonies. One guy can't do harmony. One woman can't do harmony. I remember when, when I was a young pastor, we had a lady singing in our church. It was a very nice solo. Very nice. I went up to her afterwards. Thank you for your solo. That was wonderful. She said, well, it was just the Lord. I thought, you know, I thought I heard you singing that song. <laughs> I didn't say that, but she was trying to be humble in spirit. It talks about that in here. You got to have two people to get harmony. Now, he's not talking about beach boys or the church choir here. He's talking about marriage. Um, it used to be when you needed grounds for divorce, you don't anymore. But it used to be that couples would divorce because of irreconcilable differences. That's really kind of a riot, isn't it? Is it not true that every couple in the world in the history of the world, has had irreconcilable differences. Because you're so different. And oftentimes, here's what happens. We get married, and I want to say this again. There's nothing you can do about your spouse. You can only handle your own stuff here. Okay? Once again, I want to say, there's guys in this room that divorced, they didn't want to divorce, but you couldn't stop it from happening. Um... Here's what happens. We get married. And let me say to you young guys, you get married. You don't live with her, you're married. Okay? Well, I need to find out if we're sexually compatible. You're male, she's female, guess what? <laughs> Biology 101, you're compatible. Marry her. Uh, you get married, it's in, why would you marry this girl? Why would you marry her? Why would you marry this woman? He dated other women. Why would you marry this one? Obviously, there's something about her that attracts you. You know, it's almost like before we get married, we have a certain set of glasses on, certain lenses. Before you get married, all you can see are, are her strengths. But then you have the wedding ceremony and, you know, better, better, for better or worse, we're poor, sickness and health, for death do us part, forsaking all others. Okay. And then you pray and you kiss and all that. Okay. And then the pastor says, I now present to you, Mr. and Mrs. And you start down the aisle. But before you start down the aisle, your best man, you take off your glasses, give it to him, and he gives you a new set of glasses. And from this moment on, you don't focus on her strengths, you focus on her what? Weaknesses and the things that drive you absolutely. Not. Is not that the battle you fight as a married guy? Yeah, it is. And the thing is, we all have them. We all have them. So you can't let the weaknesses become the focus of the relationship. There's a reason you married her. 
Okay? And the fact is, you get two broken people with two different personalities playing two different roles, two different parts. And as you, oh, oh, here's the thing about Harmony. The Beach Boys, the first time those guys ever sang together, did they have that crisp, amazing Harmony? The answer is no. They practiced. You practice. And you practice. And you practice. And you practice. Let's go to sympathy. The next, it's the next ingredient. He says, to sum up, talking to husbands and wives, let all be harmonious, sympathetic. So this recipe, I would take at least a gallon of uh, harmony. I'd take about a gallon of sympathy. Um, what is sympathy? Sympathy is... Uh, sympathy is being aware of the hurt and pain that other people carry. Is it not? Yeah, it is. This is where guys, we're interesting as guys, because a lot of us are bulldozers and a lot of us are linebackers, and we just keep going, you know? And guys like that tend not to be real sympathetic. So what God does with guys, how do, how do guys like that who are real strong and uh, just, just keep a stiff upper lip. How do guys like that ever become sympathetic? Because guys who are like that tend not to be sympathetic. So what happens to you? Well, God, will get, he'll crush you. He'll crush you. And suddenly, suddenly you've got pain like you, you didn't even, you, you, you could never imagine, you didn't even know it existed. Emotional pain. Sometimes it's physical pain. Oftentimes, it's emotional pain. And you didn't even know that was there. You didn't even know people could feel that way. And now suddenly, 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 see, you got a whole different reaction to people that are hurting, people that are broken, because you've been broken. Psalm 34, he is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. It's part of the maturing process. So if you're a hard guy, get ready. You're going to get busted up. Or you can say, Lord, help me here. Help me here. Um, I, I, I got to keep moving. I can't spend a lot of time on each of these. See, I, I will say this. I think a lot of times we think sympathy is something that you should have in a hospital. Right? Someone's real sick, you want to be sympathetic. But see, this is in a home. This is in a marriage. See, when, when you're sympathetic with someone, you know how they feel? They feel understood. And what does the previous verse say? You husbands likewise live with your wife in an understanding way. Didn't come natural to us. Didn't come natural to Peter. Our homes, hey guys, our homes should be safe. There should be plenty of security and safety and understanding. In our, listen, everybody's misunderstood. You go out there in the world, school, work, whatever, you're misunderstood. You don't need that at home. You don't need it. Not only do you not want it, but you don't also, listen, 
you don't want to be the guy delving it out, do you? The key to your kids wanting to be around you when you're an adult is this. They feel that you care and they feel that you understand. And with kids, you want to get inside their hearts, just like with a wife. And some are more difficult than others to do. All right, let's keep moving. And hey, hey, once again, hey guys, forgetting what lies behind. We're pressing forward. We've all screwed up here, right? We're moving ahead. Lord, help me on this now. All right. Um, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly. Brotherly? I thought this was marriage. Well, you know what brotherly means? Brothers are equals. Wherever Christianity is gone, I was reading something, an article that John Piper wrote this week, and, and he was talking about a couple, and they were in there for counseling. It was when he was a young pastor. And the wife said, I have a real problem with what you teach about male leadership and male headship. And John said, well, what, why, what is your problem? She said, I have to ask my husband for permission for everything. He said, you think that's what I teach? And she said, well, he's always listening to your tapes, and I can't go to, if I want to go to the bathroom, I have to ask for permission. That's what she said. And then Piper turned his attention on the guy and had a few things to say to him. Is that, is that what the scripture teaches? That, that's, that's a control freak. That's authoritarianism. That's not godly. That's not Christian. Is he, te- is he treating her as an equal? Both male and female are created in the image of God. Wherever Christianity has gone in the world, the status of women has gone up. Christianity did not come up with the Taliban. Right? Jesus honored women. What, is, what does the previous verse say? You husbands live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she's a woman. And watch, grant her what? Honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. There's an equality. Brothers are equals. So she is an equal. She is to be respected. She is to be honored. That's our job. Okay. And uh, how, how do you feel when you're treated that way? Well, you, you, you appreciate it. She will too. So a climate where a wife is always being put down is not a Christian climate, is it? No, it isn't. Oh, and if you're doing that, knock it off. Okay? And once again, I say that in Christian love. <laughs> but knock it off. And every once in a while, I'll do it. And you know what I need to do? I need to knock it off. Okay. You guys still with me? You know, I haven't sinned in 10 years. Did I tell you that? <laughs> it's just amazing the work God's been doing in my life. I'm just, I'm so proud of what he's doing. I, I can't even express it. And look at the next one. Kind-hearted. Kind-hearted. Every once in a while, throughout the years, Mary has looked at me and she has said, Steve, you're not being kind. It's sort of a... 
<laughs> Only she's real sweet. She, she's not, she's real calm, and she just looks at me, and she, she lets me, she just kind of, she just kind of clocks me. You're not being kind. Proverbs says, wrap truth and truth around your neck. That's not what it says. It says, wrap truth and kindness. Everybody in this room, you're, we're, we're bent one of two ways. You got the, the people that are bent towards truth, and you got the people that are bent towards kindness. So speak the truth in what? Love. See, some, some people are so loving and so kind and so sweet. Now, those folks, what they got to watch, it's hard for them sometimes to tell the truth because they don't want to hurt anybody. Okay? All right. So every strength has weakness. But if you're a truth teller, if you're a truth teller and truth comes easy to you, what do you got to watch? Not being kind. Wrap truth and Kindness around here. You need both. And we need them at home. And humble in spirit. Uh, You know what humility means? Humility simply means this. It means preferring someone else over yourself. Philippians 2. Jesus, although he he existed as God, did not regard equality with thing, with He did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. So he laid aside his privileges, and he came to earth. Jesus came to earth and died for our sins, not to do what was best for him, but to do what was best for us. Right? And it also says in that same passage in Philippians 2, it says, have this same mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Humility. In Philippians 2, also... It doesn't mean you never look out for your needs. It says, don't just look out for your own needs, but also for the needs of others. You've got to take care of your needs, but you also got to be aware of other people. And you give preference. See, that's why I said a few weeks ago, it's, if you're a Christian husband and you expect your needs to be met all the time, you got it wrong. Now, do you have needs? Yeah. Do you want your needs to be met? Well, well, yeah, you're a guy. But that can't be your whole focus. Because primarily, as the husband and father, you're not there to get your needs met. You're there to meet needs. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve, and you're the family pastor. Okay? So we've got to get out of this self thing. And you have needs, legitimate needs. God knows them. By the way, last week, Dick, I, told, I talked about t- teaching the women's group, and I said I told them two things. And then you said, what's the second one? And I thought you meant the second thing in 1 Peter 3, 7. You meant, what was the second thing I said to the women? The two women's groups I've spoken to in 21 years. Because I'm not often invited. And the first thing I said, well, just to follow up, was don't try to be the Holy Spirit in his life, in your husband's life. Don't try to be the junior Holy Spirit. And the second thing I said was, uh, make sure you meet his sexual needs often. True story. This lady over here went, oh, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. Then I I got on a plane and I left. (laughs) I did. I went straight to the airport. I had my wife and my mom with me which was interesting, you 
see? Because it's in the Bible, it's 1 Corinthians 7. Have they ever called me back? That church? No, they haven't called me. <laughs> the guys there really like me. <laughs> Let's just do nine. We'll finish up because I got four zeros on the time clock back there looking at me. Um, watch this. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. I want to say something to you divorce guys. It's really hard when you know, and this isn't everybody, but some of you guys experience this. It's really hard when certain things are being said about you to your kids that aren't true. How do you handle that? Right here. You don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. The kids may not get it now because they're young, but they're not always going to be young. They're going to grow up and they're going to figure it out. You model Christ for them. You take the high road. They'll get it. They'll get it. Not return, this, this is marriage stuff. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. You know, they got books you can buy now on insult that you can memorize. Winston Churchill didn't need to memorize them because he was so quick. If you've read any of his biographies, you know that there was a lady that just drove him nuts, and she was his, his political nemesis, Lady Astor. They were always in the same social circles, and one night they were at a state dinner and, you know, seated across from one another, and at a certain point in the dinner, she very tactfully said, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I believe I would poison your tea. Without missing a beat, he said, my dear lady, if you were my wife, I would drink it. <laughs> That's... I'll give you one more just because they're so good. But you're not supposed to do this, guys. <laughs> but I'll still give you one more. So he's, he's kind of slightly drunk one night. You know, just a little tipsy, not, not much. He's coming out of Parliament or somewhere, and she walks by, and she sees him kind of having trouble getting in the car, and she says, Mr. Prime Minister, you are drunk. And he kind of turned and got her in focus, figured out who, he, who, who she was. And she says, yes, Sam, my dear lady. However, tomorrow I'll be sober. You will be ugly forever. <laughs> Direct quote. So what we're saying is don't do that. Don't do that at home, all right? Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Giving a blessing instead, you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Watch this. For let him who desires life to love life and to see good days. Anybody in here want to love life and see good days? Yeah. All right, watch this. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Let me tell you what kills relationships. Let me tell you what kills marriages. Deceit. Lying. You can't lie and have a good marriage. You can't do it. You just can't do it. You know, when our kids are little, we baby-proof. Because if those little toddlers get underneath and get that Drano out of there and swig it, they're going to die, aren't they? 
that's a toxic deceit lying in a relationship to your wife is a it's a poison. You, you can't... Why? Because eventually they find out and you see marriages are built on commitment but marriages are also built on trust. I'll never forget... I'm going to finish this and I'll tell you this. 11. You must turn away from evil and do good. You must seek peace and pursue it. That takes a lot of time. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. His ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I'll never forget the time. Mid-80s, I'm doing a family life conference with Dennis Rainey. And anyway, it's over, and I'm talking to some different couple. And this one couple, is there any way we could get... 15, 20 minutes with you. And I had time before I went. I said, sure, we sit down. And uh, the husband said, he said, listen, I know you don't have a lot of time. Let me just cut to the chase. He said, I had an affair with my secretary. I'm a Christian. We've been married, you know, 10 years, 15 years. Uh, I was wrong. It was my fault. I have uh, repented. I have... uh, uh, let her go and found her another position. I have no contact with her. Uh, it's over. It's done with. My problem is my wife doesn't trust me. And I looked at her. And she said, well, that's true. I don't. Because this is the third time this has happened in our marriage. And I said, well, let me say this to you. And you're right, I don't have much time, so let me cut to the chase. You're mad because she won't trust you. See, let me tell you something. I don't even know you, and I don't trust you. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you why. Because you didn't tell me the whole truth. See, you put the best spin on this you could possibly spin. You could possibly do it. You had one of you said you'd had it once. I assumed this has happened once, and then your wife says it's happened three times. Has it happened three times? Yeah. Well, I don't trust you either. And what you need to do is back off. She'd be crazy to trust you. You know why? Because you're not trustworthy. Don't demand something she can't give. If you want her to trust you, why don't you be trustworthy? Let me throw something out to you, because I don't have much time here, okay? Let me just shoot real straight with you. I don't know your heart, and I don't know if your repentance is genuine or if it's counterfeit. I don't know that. God knows that. Sounds like you've taken some good steps, but time will tell. Here's what I'd suggest to you. Uh, Don't you expect her to trust you for another seven years? Because you are in trust deficit in three affairs, and you are so far in deficit that it's going to take you about seven years of being clean for you to even get back to zero. And then you can start getting into a surplus. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Because we're people, and people get wounded, and people get hurt. This is why, guys we got to be honest, 
let me tell you something. Weddings are easy. Marriage is hard. You live with somebody, there's gonna, you got two sinners, you got two broken people, and if you get honest about your life and, about, and, and, and you're going to go to deeper levels, there's going to be a lot of tears, there's going to be a lot of brokenness, but I'll tell you what, it's worth doing the work. Is it not? I mean, it's even hit symbols, it's so good. <laughs> if you've done the work. We're out of time. I was out of time 15 minutes ago. Let's pray. So our Father, we have all fallen short. That's clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. I was reading this week when Bach would write his music, his hymns. He would often write something in Latin, and it translated, help me, Jesus. Help me. That's what we're saying tonight, because we're so busted up and we're sinners. We're just saying, um, help me, Jesus. Help me to... Help me to grow in areas where I am so uh, habitually contrary to what this teaches. Thank you for your patience with us. May we be that patient with those around us whom we love. This is why, Lord, we get married for 50 and 60 years, because it takes this long for this recipe to come together. I pray for the guys that are here whose homes have, whose marriages have uh, deteriorated and have ended because they, for whatever reason. I pray that uh, you would meet the needs that they have for friendship and companionship. You've created this not to be alone, but to be connected. Keep your eye on those guys. Give them what they need when they need it. Don't let them get into despair and discouragement. And for all of us, help us to join Paul by not looking back, but by looking ahead. Now, if there's something you put on our hearts that we need to get right with somebody, that's one thing. We need to go get it right. But just to stir up the past, to stir it up, that's not of you, that's of the enemy. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And we thank you for him and what he has done and that he saves us every day. In his name we pray these things. Amen.